The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 260th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're going to be looking at the haunted islands of Maine. There are thousands of them there, and I have picked out a handful to share with you that have some haunting stories and experiences to go with them. And this was all inspired by a suggestion by our listener, Katrina Ray Salas. She had suggested... Malaga Island, and she's going to be joining me shortly to share the history and hauntings that are going on there. And as I started looking at some of the other islands there, I went, wow, there's a whole bunch of them that have some strange goings on. So we'll be looking at those in just a moment. Before we do that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew a bunch of J names. It's amazing how many of you we had this week. Jelena, Jeremiah, Jackie, and Joe. And then we also have Laura, Siri, Tim, Amy, and Amanda joining us. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment, Naughty, was suggested by Susan Elizabeth Wiggum. Have you ever asked yourself, why does Dracula wear a tuxedo? Yep, I know, you ponder these things just like me. Bram Stoker in his novel Dracula describes the visual appearance of Dracula's face and such, but not much about his attire. So where did we get this idea that Dracula wears a tuxedo, cape, and a medallion? You know, the traditional stuff you see at the store when you go to buy a Dracula costume? And where did we get that he had an aristocratic demeanor about him? And if you think about it, the first movie inspired by the novel was Nostrafu, and the vampire in that movie is a hideous creature. In 1924, Raymond Huntley played Dracula on stage in London, and this would be the first time that the character was portrayed as charming and wearing a tuxedo. Legend claims that Huntley provided his own costume. When Dracula came to the stage in America in the late 1920s, Bela Lugosi played the title role, and he went with the tuxedo and well-coiffed hair as well, adding the cape. When the stage play was produced by Universal as a movie starring Lugosi, the image of the Halloween Dracula was cemented. The medallion that is part of the costume was inspired by Lugosi, who wore the ornamental medal on his chest, and some believe that it was his own personal possession. The origins of the medallion are mysterious, and it only appears in two scenes. Lugosi was allegedly buried with one version of the medal, and as we know, he wore his Dracula cape as well, 
And that certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. In the month of May, on the 9th in 1862, to prevent its capture by Union forces, the Confederate ironclad Merrimack was destroyed by the Confederate Navy. Towards the beginning of the Civil War, the Confederates seized the Merrimack from the Union shipyard in Virginia. They transformed the ship into an ironclad so strong that it could not be harmed by cannonballs. The Confederates quickly used the Merrimack to sink two Union ships, the Cumberland and Congress. The Union feared this ship and knew they had to build something formidable before the Merrimack could destroy more of their navy. Within a hundred days, the Monitor was built. This ship had been built in secret and was described as a cheese box on a raft. It was made from iron and had a revolving turret with two big guns inside it. In March, the Merrimack and the small Union ironclad monitor met and came to a draw. This was history's first duel between ironclad warships. The ships met again in April but did not engage. Then in May, the Confederates had to evacuate Norfolk and they destroyed the Merrimack to prevent its capture. The Monitor would later be lost during a gale off Cape Hatteras. The encounters of these two ironclads changed naval warfare forever, making wooden ships obsolete. Based on its location, Maine has been a prime spot for explorers. There are 4,600 islands off the coast of Maine, and each of these islands has its own unique history. Some of that history is tragic, and it is these grievous stories that seem to have led to some haunting experiences. Outer Heron Island reportedly has buried treasure, a haunted cave, and apparitions on the beach. There's Jewel Island with its residual ghost soldiers and stories of buried treasure. Boone Island has its very own haunted lighthouse. Long Island has its phantom ghost ship and crew. And as I said, listener Katrina Ray Solis is going to join me to share a mostly unknown history about Malaga Island that highlights the racism that led to some cruel treatment and ultimately some haunting activity. Join me as we explore the haunted islands of Maine. No one is sure how Maine came to have that name. Native Americans were the first to brave the cold and harsh terrain of Maine. They used birch bark canoes to explore the coast. They were hunter-gatherers, but eventually began growing corn and beans in the summer. Leif Erikson was the first European to explore the coast of Maine as early as 1003. John Cabot was a Venetian explorer, and he claimed the New England area for Britain in 1498. In 1622, Sir Fernando Gorges and John Mason received a royal grant for all the land between the Merrimack and Kennebec Rivers, and then in 1639, Gorges was granted exclusive rights to Maine by another English king. And I just wanted to point out a little bit of synchronicity. We're mentioning the Merrimack River here, and we had the Merrimack as part of our history, the name of the ironclad. (laughs) I just, I went, wow, to see that name twice in the same show and have it be two different things. Interesting. 
Eventually, though, the Massachusetts Bay Colony claimed jurisdiction over Maine in 1647, and they purchased propriety rights from George's heirs in 1677. Several French and Indian wars took place on Maine until the Treaty of Paris in 1763, and that's when France surrendered all claims in North America. Maine developed a fishing, shipbuilding, and lumber industry in the ensuing years. Massachusetts maintained control of Maine, which tried voting for separation and statehood several times, but I guess there just wasn't enough interest for voters, so there was such a low turnout that they could never get the votes they needed to go for their own statehood. The tide turned, however, during the War of 1812, because it would seem Massachusetts decided to provide very little support to Maine, and they're sitting there going, okay, look, you want to have jurisdiction over us, you don't want us to be our own state, but you're not going to help us? get lost. And so then they did vote to separate and become their own state. And Maine did achieve statehood on March 15th, 1820. So the first island we're going to look at here, and I just want to let everybody know before I get into all of these, that Marcus Labrizzi wrote a book called Haunted Islands in the Gulf of Maine. And this is where a lot of this information is going to be coming from. So the first island we're going to look at is Outer Heron Island. Outer Heron Island lies a few miles offshore from Booth Bay Harbor. There are stories of a buried pirate treasure here near a cave. And this buried pirate treasure story is going to come up a lot on these islands. So either there's a lot of legends about pirate treasure or this is something that they typically did in Maine quite a bit. I don't know if it was because it was so far north. They didn't think anybody would come up that far or what we have going on here. But lots of stories of buried treasure. And this is one of the islands that has one has that story. Paranormal activity is reported at this cave, and some claim that that cave is some kind of power point on the island. So I don't know if they think it's like a portal or if it's just an energy center, but photographs have revealed several weird anomalies in that vicinity, and there's multiple spirits that seem to be in those pictures. In one picture, there appears to be a ghostly pirate peeking out from behind a treasure hunter who was being photographed in front of the cave. There's a legend of a lost grave here, and some claim the skeleton in the grave wears an emerald seal ring given to Sir Francis Drake by Queen Elizabeth I. The claim is that this is the body of Drake's great-grandson, who died on a trip to Maine. So they're not sure if maybe that is leading to some hauntings, because he's buried away from his family in this strange land. One man claims that he saw a gathering of ghosts on a beach one night. There was a bonfire as well, and he even heard some drumming going on. He did not know that he was witnessing a ghostly scene until he snuck up on the group, and when he jumped into the open, the fire was gone, the drumming had stopped, and there was no one on the beach. Next, we have Jewel Island. This island is eight miles from the city of Portland, Maine, and the outermost island of all of the islands here that are in this bay. It is named for George Jewell, who bought the island in 1637. He ended up drowning in Boston Harbor after a drunken night and didn't get to enjoy this island for long. Jewell Island eventually became a strategic center during World War II, and the military built Battery 202 there. Three years after V-Day, Battery 202 was abandoned by the soldiers physically, but it seems as though some essence has remained behind. A woman named Margaret visited the abandoned Battery 202 when she was a young girl. She happened upon a doorway that was the entrance to the tunnel that led to the gunnery. She could hear men speaking inside the tunnel. She called out, and the voices stopped. They started up again a moment later. She entered the tunnel, but found nobody. 
and she's way braver than I am, I would have been like, you know, I'm not wandering in there because if I'm hearing a bunch of voices in there, I don't know what's going on. I'm not going in there. There is a legend that a gold treasure had been buried on Jewel Island. A ship sailing for Bermuda shipwrecked near the island and the survivors saved the gold and buried it on the island. And then they never returned to retrieve it. At least that is one of the stories told. Another is connected to the pirate Anne Bonny. There's a claim that she and seven men buried a treasure and then she killed all the men so that only she knew the location. And then there are the rumors that Captain Kidd sailed along the coast here and buried some of his treasure here as well. There are tales of ghosts connected to these treasures roaming the beaches, perhaps looking for their treasures. Next, we have Boone Island. Boone Island is only 400 square yards, located six miles from York, Maine, and was given its name by a group of sailors that were shipwrecked on the island in 1682. Boone means lucky place, and they felt it was lucky that the island was there, and that a bonfire they built brought them rescue. Boone may not really be such a lucky island. A phantom fire is seen blazing on the island on stormy nights. It leaves no burn marks, and when people seek it out, it disappears when they get too close. The Native Americans who lived here would light bonfires for sacred offerings on Mount Agamenticus. So are people seeing a residual sacred offering fire burning there? Another shipwreck here was of the Nottingham Galley in 1710. The sailors managed to build a bridge to the island with the ship's foremast, and they were relieved to be saved by the island. Until they realized they had no food, fresh water, or a way to build a fire. As is the case with so many of these castaway or stranded stories, when there's at least more than one of them that's been stranded, cannibalism is about to enter the picture here. There was Captain John Dean and 13 of his crew. The first to go was the cook, but he was not eaten as the men turned to raw mussels and seagulls for food. But before long, they were starving. And something to point out here is that this happened during the winter, and this is Maine. (laughs) We can't build a fire. So not only are they starving, they are freezing because they have no fire. So we've got frostbite going on here as well. So they're losing their fingers and their toes and trying to just huddle together to keep warm. When the carpenter died, that's when the cannibalism starts going on here. They decided that they were going to have to do this. There's no other way they're going to survive. So they butchered his body. And thankfully, since it was winter, it was able to keep. And they lived off of it for the next two weeks until they were finally rescued on January 2nd, 1711. They had survived 23 days on the island. It's a miracle that they managed to survive. It's said that the spirits of the cook and carpenter are still on the island. Now, I don't know if it's just because they died there or perhaps the carpenter might be a little unhappy that he was used for food. Not sure. But their deep moans are heard on the wind. Disembodied footsteps are heard on the ground when no one is nearby. Workers on the island have long reported feeling as though they are being watched when they've worked. Full-bodied apparitions and emaciated figures wearing ragged clothes have appeared to keepers as well. There's more than just two emaciated figures here. So these aren't just the ghosts of the cook and the carpenter. There are those that think the guilt of being cannibals has brought back the spirits of the survivors. Now, we already know from what I've said here that we've had a couple of shipwrecks near this island. There were more than just those two. So obviously the seas around this island are treacherous and a lighthouse was needed. 
So the station was established in 1799, and the original lighthouse that was here was built in 1811. And this was authorized by President James Madison during the War of 1812. The one that stands today was built in 1855. The lighthouse was made from granite, and it rises 133 feet tall, which makes it New England's tallest lighthouse. Keepers have experienced paranormal phenomenon here almost from the beginning. One of them owned a Labrador retriever, and that dog would snarl and snap at something unseen, and even chase something that the keeper could not see. We also have a woman in white here. She is seen at dusk or dawn on the rocks at the water's edge. No one knows who she is or why she is here. But this ghost could possibly belong to Catherine Brights, who was the wife of lighthouse keeper Luke Brights. We've covered a lot of lighthouses on the podcast, and it's such a lonely place for a lot of these keepers. And thankfully, many of them were able to take their spouses with them. But when you're out there, you're just on your own. And basically, your lifeline to the mainland is a boat. Well, they had this violent storm that started racking the island and the lighthouse. And they had just this little boat that is their salvation. Luke was afraid they were going to lose it. So he told Catherine, I have got to go out there and somehow get the boat dragged up onto the shore so that it's not just destroyed on the rocks or carried away. So he tied himself to the lighthouse with a rope and was making his way across the ground and he gets over to the rocks and Catherine loses sight of him. She comes running down and outside and she sees him being battered on the rocks. Somehow she finds the inner strength to grab hold of the rope and drag his body back to shore and clearly he is dead. Then she takes him and drags him into the lighthouse And she kind of sets him at the base of the stairs because she just, she didn't know what to do with him. She managed to maintain the light for five days with his body basically decaying there near the stairs. I mean, we can't even hardly imagine what she must have been going through. She's lost her husband. She's left alone at the lighthouse. She's got to maintain that light in order to save the other boats that would be out there. But she's watching him go into rigor mortis and starting to decay there. Finally, she just gave up, I guess. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but the light went out and she stopped eating. Obviously, the people on the mainland went, um, the light hasn't been lit up for a couple nights. We better go out there and see if there's some trouble. So a group came to see what had happened and they found Catherine stark raving mad. She had completely lost her mind. They took her back to the mainland and got her into a hospital and she did die there a few weeks later. It is thought that her spirit returned to Boone Island. So... Possibly she might be our woman in white hair. Fishermen claim to hear her cries and see her figure on the rocks. One night, a keeper was unable to return to the island to light the light, but it came on by itself, and a lot of people attribute that to Catherine's ghost. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The light was automated in 1980, and it's maintained by the Coast Guard. And then the island was put up for auction and is now privately owned. So no one can go out and visit the lighthouse or tour it. 
but um, it looks like a, a pretty cool lighthouse and definitely has interesting stories to go with it. Next, we have Long Island. This is off of Portland, Maine, and actually seceded from the city in 1993. As is the case with most of the islands, Native Americans were the first residents, but left when Europeans arrived in the 17th century. The first to build a house here was Colonel Ezekiel Cushing. He bought the island in 1732 and is credited with being the first European to settle and build a house on the island. He willed the island to his nine children when he died in 1765. Farmers and fishermen came soon thereafter. And then, a little bit after that, other settlers arrived to make a livelihood out of farming, fishing, and catching lobsters. In the late 1800s, the island turned to tourism, and the Granite Spring Hotel and Casino was built. People arrived on steamboats and paraded with their parasols on the boardwalk, until a fire right before World War I burned it all to the ground. During World War II, Casco Bay became United States Navy Base Sail. Tourism started up again, and it is still a popular place in the summer for visits. One ghost story told about this island is about an experience a little girl named Isabel had one day on her way home from school. The crew from the Sea Maiden was thought to have been shipwrecked at sea because they were way overdue for coming home, but she saw the entire crew walking up the wharf from that trip. They looked to be carrying things they had brought back from their voyage to foreign lands. She noticed that even though they should have been happy and cavorting, they were very grim and took no notice of her or any of their surroundings. She hurried home to tell her family that the Sea Maiden had made it to port. Her family went to a neighbor's to tell them the good news and found that no one had seen or heard from the crew, and one of their neighbors was the family of the first mate. So you would think if the ship had come in, they were all heading home, that he would have made it home and said, hey, I'm, I'm home, here's some presents and stuff. And they've heard nothing from him, which would have been quite unusual. So a group of them all headed down to the wharf, and when they got there, they see that there's no ship there. The next day, the village learned that the Sea Maiden had been shipwrecked and the whole crew had perished. So this clearly was a ghost ship coming back with its ghost crew. And I don't know if it was like a final farewell to try to see their families or what have you, but pretty creepy. And next we have Malaga Island. Well, I am joined by our listener, Katrina Ray Salas, and she had suggested this location Malaga Island in Maine, and I had never heard of it before, and it's actually pretty tragic that I haven't heard of it because this is a place that everybody, especially in America, should know about. So I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. How are you, Katrina? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. Before we get into talking about the island, I always love to ask people, since you're listening to History Goes Bump, what got you interested in the paranormal to begin with? I was thinking about this question the other day because I knew you were going to ask it. (laughs) And and trying to figure that out. And I'm not sure. I mean, there there was never a time I wasn't interested. I grew up in a very religious household. My parents are Baptist Christian, but my father is a huge fan of cryptozoology. He's a big believer in Bigfoot. And it just kind of went from there. I was like the hugest, you know, I was a big fan of X-Files when I was a kid. And that's Mm -hmm. all I cared about was anything that was a little off, anything that was a little weird. So I think it always went from there. Unlike a lot of your listeners, and I'm probably going to alienate people with this, I am not into the ghost hunting aspect of stuff. Gotcha. I think it's because I don't feel like I need proof because I already believe it. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel the need to ghost hunt. And I watched the ghost hunter shows for a while. I had an ex who was obsessed with the ghost hunter shows, and I've watched quite a few of them when I was with her. But that's not my thing. I'm a history buff first, and that's where I go. And I just like the stories of it. 
Well, that's awesome. That's kind of the, the place that I come from, too. I start with the history and then look at the ghost stories and then you look back at the history because you got to figure out why in the world is there something going on here? So I completely understand that. Have you had any paranormal experiences of your own? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, duh. Um, I've been talking, I've talked on the Spooktacular group a few times about my house. I live in a almost 200 year old house that used to be an undertaker's home. Mm-hmm. It was actually built to be the undertaker to accompany the church next door. But we only, we only bought the house a couple of months ago. Like I said, I don't need proof. I don't know. I mean, I can't really give like specific stories because to me, this is all kind of just always happened. My wife is Native American and in her culture, it I was I've always been kind of drawn or I've, since I met her, I've been really drawn to the way that her culture really doesn't view ghosts as anything abnormal. It's just part of life. And I think that's kind of how my life has worked. I, mm-hmm. You know, I've had experiences here and there, things I saw. I grew up in another house that was older than this one. The house I lived in from the time I was about 10 until I was about 16 years old was so old that the deed said on it, very old. <laughs> they didn't actually have the year it was built. <laughs> the deed just said very old. So, and I, there were a couple of times when I was a teenager, there was this, I'd always kind of see out of the corner of my eye, this woman in the mudroom of the house when I was walking between the mudroom and the and the barn. The barn had a secret passageway that was part of the Underground Railroad to get people up to Canada. And that secret passageway always creeped me out. There was always like a, a creepy feeling there. As I've like grown and matured in my, I think, spirituality around it, because I'm, I've got these lessons from the Native American culture from my wife, I'm kind of viewing it more like a normal part of life. And I tend to not separate them out into individual stories anymore for some reason. Well, you know, that makes sense. If you've had a lot of experiences, it would just seem like a a normal, everyday kind of thing. And I was glad that you mentioned your house because I was actually going to ask you about it because I know everybody in the Spooktacular Krill was so excited that you bought this house. (laughs) I'm like, we've got to be the only weirdos on the planet that are like, hey, she's in a place that had like dead bodies in it and stuff. Cool. Well, and I've learned like everybody around town knows this. I went to the library and was checking out a book the other day and I was checking out a book by um, Caitlin Doughty. She's the Ask a Mortician from YouTube. Oh, sure. Yeah. And... I was checking out one of her books at the library and the librarian was like, oh, she's so cool. And she was like, and I said, yeah, I just bought a house around the corner. It used to be the Undertakers. And she was like, oh, the big yellow one. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, my mom used to have a have a, an embalming table in the dining room that she just used as a regular table. But it was from the same era as your house. And we used to talk to the guy that used to own your house about whether or not that was from your house. And I was like. Oh, everybody knows my house was an undertaker's house. <laughs> so when they're whispering about you on the street, you know exactly what they're talking about. <laughs> She's in that house. Find, find me a Mainer who doesn't believe in ghosts, though, really. Sure. I mean, there aren't very many. Maine is a very, we're a pretty superstitious and very open-minded state, I think. Well, you, you got to think it's so cold there that how much talking and community would be going around fires for centuries because it's so cold you're just going to gather around bonfires and things and that's what you do is talk about that stuff definitely and when we get to the malaga island stuff the reason i discovered malaga island was because i was doing research for a book i wrote and my book is historical fiction short stories and all based on main history but as i was researching all these different points in main history every story i found every town in maine had like their own ghost and had their own story and it's just kind of accepted lore all over the state. And I don't know, it's just, it's a creepy place. There's a reason Stephen King's for me. Oh, obviously, clearly. (laughs) 
you mentioned your book. Is that something that everybody can read? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Well, give us the name. Uh, it's called By the River. By the River. Okay. It's a it's a short short collection. It's a pretty small. It's a little book. Okay. <laughs> it was my my uh, bachelor's. My bachelor's of fine arts and creative writing, and it was my final project. Awesome. Well, I'm gonna get that and read it and enjoy it. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> How fascinating that a location that you had lived at as a kid was a place that had this tunnel for the Underground Railroad. And I always find it fascinating how many times, including a place that I've been inside that is this underground area or a tunnel, how much creepiness is involved with that. And you'll hear about hauntings that go on with that. And I I wonder, is it just because, because you're thinking they're on their way to freedom. So that would be a great emotion to be having. But on the other side, all the fear that would be involved in that. And I wonder if that's why there's so much haunting type activity that goes on around these locations. So much terror. Definitely. I definitely think that's part of it. Well, as I said, I have never heard of Malaga Island. And so can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, where it's located and then a little bit about the history there? Or I guess a lot about the history. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Malaga is right off the coast of Phippsburg, Maine. It's actually, you can only access it by personal boat. There's no ferry or anything that runs out to it. Uh, And Phippsburg is right, it's how to describe. So Portland, Maine is, of course, the only town that anybody ever knows in Maine. (laughs) And it's about an hour north of Portland and then right off the coast. Okay. It was first inhabited by this group of people who were descendants of Benjamin Darling. Benjamin Darling was a former slave. He was a freed slave. And in the 1860s, he bought this island with his money. That's this island and another was his story, but he didn't have any paperwork to prove that. His descendants lived on this island for about 50 years. And in 19, in the early 1900s, there was this campaign against them, basically. And they actually, uh, one of the things I've read on it says that regarding history of black people in America, it's one of the most well-documented events because there was so much newspaper propaganda against Malaga Island. So what happened was the people of Maine, there were multiple things going on. There was the eugenics movement, which made people feel that if you were the, the son of a criminal, you were going to be a criminal. And then there was the a downfall in the train industry that was causing economic hardship in Maine. There was competition for fishing rights between the the residents of Malaga. And there were only about 45 residents of Malaga, but there were still some, they were definitely scapegoated. There was some competition for fishing rights. There was the fact that over half the island was black. Most of them were, were mixed race. There were a couple of Penobscot Indians on the island or people that had Penobscot ancestry. So there was the racism aspect. That was really the biggest thing I believe was the racism. There was our our burgeoning tourism tourism industry in Maine. There were rumors that they wanted to open a resort nearby and these mixed race women were out there with their skirts tucked up under their belts and out there doing their laundry in the water and how horrible this would be for tourism industry. So there was all these different things that compounded into in 1912 or the, at the end of 1911, the beginning of 1912, Governor Plaisted, the governor of Maine, evicted the residents of this island, claiming they had no right to be there. And it wasn't enough to just evict them. He evicted these these residents. At that point, there were about 40 people, although there were people moving in and off, out, off the island and back to the mainland all the time. So it's kind of fluid and kind of unsure of exactly how many people. Sure. But this group of people were moved off the island. Eight people were institutionalized against their will at the what's now Pineland Farms, which at the time was the main school for the feeble-minded in New Gloucester. 
only six of those six of those people were not actually handicapped in any way, nor did they have any sort of mental health issues. Two of them did. So eight people were moved there. Only two of them actually belonged there. And then they took it one step further. They wanted to erase all evidence that anybody had ever lived on the island. They moved all the houses. A couple of people had moved their houses already, but they moved the rest of them. The, the school that was on the island was moved to a different island, and it's still used as a chapel on that island today. And they dug up the cemetery. Mm. And they moved all 17 bodies from the cemetery. They put them together into five coffins and buried those five coffins at the School for the Feeble-Minded in New Gloucester. <laughs> Boy, they were asking <laughs> for it. <laughs> they really they really wanted to uh, they really wanted to erase all sign that anybody had ever lived on this island largely because they wanted to be able to sell the island to somebody who wanted to build a summer home. There's a lot of summer homes around there. Uh, my wife's family lives right there and there's uh, we have reason to believe my wife is a descendant of the island, hmm. but it's not something a lot of people talk about. Mm -hmm. Up until just a few years ago, you would still hear the term Malagite as a slur among fishermen on the coast. Oh, interesting. When you were going to insult somebody, what are you, some kind of Malagite? Mm. And it totally descended from that. And I mean, I'm sure it still is heard, although now the history is kind of talked about a bit more. So it's probably not as heard of now. But because of that, there aren't a lot of people who will talk about the fact that they have Malaga uh, that they're Malaga descendants. We have reason to believe my wife is, and her family has a summer home or has a home right near there. There's a lot of summer homes and the island. They wanted to be able to sell the island to somebody who would want to turn it into a summer home. And they couldn't do that with this horrible history, especially around the eugenics movement. Like you couldn't say, Hey, a bunch of black people lived here. Nobody wanted to hear that. Sure. I mean, Maine is statistically Maine is the whitest state in the nation. And we have this one really horrible story regarding some of the few black residents we've had in this state. <laughs> they didn't want any evidence left behind. Well, you answered one of my questions that I was going to ask, because I'm thinking this isn't a huge island. And oh, it's was, very small. Yeah, so I was like, why in the world were they, you know, kick all these people off of there? Why did they care so much? But yep. as you pointed out, when it comes to economics and the possibility of selling this to somebody who wants to own an island and put their home on it, or even you know, they could have been thinking in the future, a resort style place. Yeah, there was always this rumor that this resort was going to go there. There's never been a resort anywhere near there. Nobody's ever done anything with the island since until 2012, when they turned it into a nature reserve and you can walk around the island now. So that was just kind of a waste to do all of that since they didn't do anything with it after that. Oh, yeah, that was the other thing I was gonna say. Yes, thank you. You just you just sparked my memory. Um, the Town of Phippsburg, officially, Malaga is part of the town of Phippsburg, but just before all of this happened, around uh, 1898-ish, I believe it was, they began kind of this battle with one other nearby town. Nobody wanted to own the island at that point because the residents that were still on the island at that point were costing them money because most of them were very poor. And at that time, poor people were taken care of by individual towns. So nobody wanted to wanted to own the island. And then when Phippsburg was forced to own the island, Phippsburg was like, OK, well, if we're going to be forced to own the island, we're going to get rid of the people because they're really the problem, not the island. So it was a whole thing. This is like all recorded in newspaper articles that when you read them, the slant of the newspaper articles will blow your mind. It's so ridiculously racist and so, so driven to make people hate this island. And it was reported on nationwide. Harper's Magazine had an article about it. Everybody in the nation at the time knew about Malaga Island, Maine. That just blows my mind. 
I mean, you're just thinking, again, this is a little island with a handful of people on it, and it's making national news. Yeah, it's power of racism right there. Well, and I tell you, I mean, and when you look back at the eugenics movement, just how powerful that was. And, you know, I just love the names that they used to use back then when we talk about asylums and stuff. And, you know, you were talking about this school for the feeble minded. It it just, you know. (laughs) Well, and at the time, feeble minded was actually a scientific term for the eugenics movement, because the eugenics movement was all about the science of why these people were less than. And the feeble minded was actually a scientific term that was used to describe people who would have biologically be bu- been built to be less than somebody else. Wow. And especially when you think about, because the media nowadays is a lot more, uh, you know, liberal and open to things to think back then. It just, it, that the power of that tool that they have there and how they can get people to think in those kinds of ways. Do we know any more about the, the gentleman who was there initially? Where did he, do you know where he came from and how far he had to travel to get up to Maine? I don't know much of where he came from. I've heard a few different stories. I've heard that I've heard one story that he was from and there's probably more. It's been a few years since I've really brushed up on my Malaga stuff. If you'd asked me three years ago, I could have told you every detail and every name off the top of my head. But <laughs> there, were, I've heard rumors he was from a plantation in the South. And then I've heard another story that he was actually from more like the Bahamas area. So it's very... Very uncertain for as far as where I stand. There may be more. There's a lot of information out of, out there about Malaga now. So there's another island that's just below that. Is it's called Horse Island? Is that right? Yeah, and he owned that one as well. So I'm thinking he had to have some amount of money as a freed slave to be buying islands and stuff. Definitely. Yep. So that's great. Yeah, they uh, the Main State Museum, which is about a mile from where I'm sitting right now, did a big display on the island for the 100th, 100th anniversary of when they were all evicted. So in 2012, was a descendant from, a, a darling descendant who is on a documentary about it. You can find it, I think, on YouTube. And she was talking about how how impressive it was that he had this money and how that was likely part of what spurned the people, the rest of the people in town, was that Maine didn't have a lot of Black people and the Black people that, that Maine had, they didn't want them to have money and property. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that gives you power if you have that kind of stuff. So no. Mm-hmm. Well, we moved a cemetery from this location. We know that when you tend to do that, and then you disturb the bodies in such a way that you not only dig them up and move them, but then you throw a bunch of them into the same coffins together, that usually doesn't go over well. Do we <laughs> have any rumors of hauntings connected to stuff like that? I have heard so many rumors and so few actual stories. it's really funny i have a friend who lived just about half a mile from pineland and all the all the stories i hear are from pineland because that's where the bodies were moved to and malaga's uninhabited Mm -hmm. and has remained uninhabited since there and there aren't you know there's very few people that can say yes i've stepped up stepped foot on that island the only story that i've heard that's anywhere near supernatural about malaga itself is from the day that governor baldacci apologized to the darling descendants Our governor in, I want to say it was 2008, I might be off, somewhere between 2008 and 2012, Governor Baldacci from Maine held a, you know, held a big thing out there. They had like something like 80 descendants of the Darling family on the island with him. And he performed an official apology from the state of Maine to the Darling descendants. And the Darling descendants say that as he was speaking, and there's video on YouTube of of the speaking, but you can't hear it. They say as they were speaking, it was a cloudy day. And as he was speaking, the sun came out 
as he was saying the words, I'm sorry. And then all the trees around them started quivering. Oh, interesting. So that's kind of a good thing. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, this is documented in a couple of books that I've seen, as well as I heard that descendant that was at the museum. I was there when she was speaking once and she talked about it that day, too, that it was just a really it felt like everything was being cleansed and everything was was nice and calm after that. Well, and it makes sense that you wouldn't hear a ton of stories for people who've visited because it's not a place that a lot of people over the years have been able to access. And then since you said it has like nature, it's like a nature preserve. Are there trails over there for people to explore? I think so, but I'm not sure how I have not actually been to the island myself. So I'm not sure I've been nearby to a couple of others and seen the island from a distance, but it's actually really difficult to get to if you don't have your own boat. (laughs) Sure. It's not something that they have a a ferry that you can go hang out on. (laughs) Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And I'm not much of a kayaker. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of information on Pineland, which used to be the main school for the feeble minded. There's a lot of rumors of ghosts around that building. That's where your ghost activity is. I know main ghost hunters have been there a couple of times. They've gotten some weird photographs with some weird discolorations in them and such around the cemetery. Visitors of the of Pineland talk about that all the time, that they find weird um, images. There's a book called Haunted Islands in the Gulf of Maine that has a lot of stories in it that's very cool. So how long was this main school for the feeble-minded open? Do you know? It was a long time. And now it's actually a farm and it's kind of been broken up into a bunch of different things. A really good cheese. <laughs> if you want to go out to the farm stand out there, the food is really good. And it's also got some walking trails. I've done a couple of photo shoots. I used to be a professional photographer. I've done some photo shoots for some people out there. It's a beautiful area. Do they think the hauntings there are just connected to the cemetery or was there a problem with the treatment of the people there or people dying there that may have caused some Definitely of this haunting? Definitely a problem with the treatment. Well, okay. and part of it was, okay, so if you look just at the Malaga residents that were there, there were eight Malaga residents there. Six of them were one family, the, the Marks family. And when they arrived, they were split by gender, men one way, women the other. One of the girls had an 18-month-old son she was separated from. And that 18-month-old son died very young at Pineland. Uh-huh. So, I mean, that, do- that doesn't bode well for the treatment that people were receiving there. I've heard rumors about, I think her name is Lottie Marks. I've heard rumors about her haunting one of the buildings there, about her walking up and down the halls. I've never heard a specific person say, yes, this is what happened. I've only heard this through like, oh, well, people say that this is happening. But when you look at any of those schools, we have Amhide right near me, too. That's the Augusta, Augusta area school for this or the Augusta area institution would have been very similar. And they all have such horrible history behind, behind like how people were treated. This book, Voices of Pineland is all about just Pineland itself. And some of the stories in there will turn your stomach. It's horrible. Mm. It's horrible how people were treated in those those institutions. And you figure six of these eight residents from Malaga that were there had nothing wrong with them. They were intellectually fine. just fine. Mm-hmm. Just fine. And mentally just fine. So that's that alone is just terrifying that these people were put there to begin with. I can't imagine what that would be like. And then you're thinking this is the era of eugenics. And we know that one of their big pushes was to sterilize these people because they thought, well, this is all genetic. So if we just sterilize them, then we'll get that out of the gene pool. And you can't justify sterilizing them. Let's put them into an institution where we split them by gender and they never see a person of another gender. Oh, yep. I didn't even think about that. There was another family from Malaga, the Tripp family. The Tripp family 
when they were evicted off of the island, got themselves a boat, which they called their scow, I think is, was their name for it. They lived on this, it was basically a houseboat. They lived on this tiny little shack boat for a couple of years. And one of the descendants of that, or one of the children from that family, his children were at the Maine State Museum when I was there one day. And I was talking to one of them about the fact that her father was an alcoholic. And the only time he ever talked about Malaga Island was when he was drunk. And after they were evicted from that island, they lived on this houseboat. He was seven when his when his mother died, and he was alone on the boat with her. His father went to get a doctor because she, she was sick, and by the time they got back, his mother was dead, and he was laying on top of her body trying to wake her up. And from the rest of his life, no, he never talked about Malaga Island except when he was drunk, so his children didn't realize what Malaga Island even was until they started talking to a couple of descendants from the Darling family, which was also from that island. And then they made the connection of, oh, this is what he was always talking about when he was drinking. Wow. I have to ask, because, I mean, people probably think, oh, Diane would never go to Maine. But I actually have wanted to visit Maine, particularly, I know there's some cruise ships that go up there for the changing of the fall color. So when is the best time to hit it for the fall colors to start changing? You have to watch the weather through the summer to really know for sure. But September is, in my opinion, the prettiest month in Maine. All right. Well, you might see me up there sometime in September then. It's a beautiful place. And the weather wouldn't be too bad for you usually in September. I mean, we get like the freak cold day, but usually you'd like September. Okay. Well, that's what I will mark on my calendar for future reference. Going to go to Maine, (laughs) do it in September. And I went to Florida in March and couldn't handle it. So. Well, I want to thank you for suggesting this location, Katrina, and for coming on to share it with us because it was something I had never heard of. And to think that this, I mean, it obviously was a pretty well-known thing back in its time. And for nobody to really know about it now, it needs to be talked about. Yeah, it's really fascinating. There's a book called um, Strange Fruit by Joel Christian Gill. He used to be a professor at the college I went to. Uh, He might still be a professor there. I'm not sure. But he was when I was there. And He wrote about Malaga Island in his book. It's a graphic novel of lesser known black history. Mm. And he wrote about it in his book. And it's really interesting. So it's making its way out there. People are talking about it. It's you're finding stuff. When I first started researching Malaga Island, all I could find on it was two little paragraphs on the Internet. Wow. And that was it. And now you go on YouTube, just type, go on YouTube, type in Malaga Island, Maine, and you will find hundreds of videos of people talking about the island. So. The history is getting out there finally, and I think it's really important. And I think it's important that Maine own this history because Maine likes to pretend that we have no black history. And we definitely have black history and we have black residents and those people need to be recognized and need their voices heard. So I think it's important that we as a state own this history and admit to what happened on Malaga. Sure. You can see why they're like, oh, yeah, we don't really have any black history here. Nope. Just move (laughs) along. Nothing happening here. No black history except that one time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have a great rest of your weekend, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future sometime. You too, Diane. I'm sure I'll come up with something else for you. Okay, sounds great. Bye-bye. So you guys heard Katrina mentioning this Pineland Farms, which is a 5,000-acre working farm today. And this is where the former main school for the feeble-minded had been. And the main ghost hunters did an informal investigation of the cemetery there. One of the things they reported about it was, while on location, Tony claims to have had an experience we tried to get on digital camera and on tape, but couldn't because the battery to my video camera was sucked dry, and all of the photos we took after Tony announced that the experience was taking place came out purple and blurry. 
My camera batteries for this digital camera also went from full to dying in an extremely short period of time. We are planning a return nighttime trip with permission in hand by the proper authorities in the next two months. A psychic named Kelly Spurlock was visiting the island, and she saw a group of ghostly African-American women dressed in white dresses and white headcloths. They appeared to be from the ages of 12 to 18, and there were about 12 of them. They faded into the air as Spurlock's boat landed. She noted that they seemed to be an intelligent haunting as they made eye contact with her and definitely seemed to have seen her. They gave off a sense of foreboding, she said. And the ghost of a woman named Beth McKinney is said to roam the northwest part of the island near an old well. Her name has been picked up on the Ghost Radar app, and a strong smell of perfume has been detected by people when they are in the vicinity of the well. And this well is at the site of the former home of the McKinney family. Beth died in the home and was buried in the cemetery there, until she was dug up, as you heard, and the bodies were all moved. So some are wondering if she's haunting this location because her grave was disturbed and her body's been moved. Strange images have been caught on film, usually featuring a white billowing shape or strands of light orbs with faces. Batteries drain and camera shutters freeze up. The islands of Maine are each different with their own unique history, and they each have their own individual ghost stories. Are any of these stories true? Are these islands haunted? That is for you to decide. And in the show notes, I do have the name of Marcus Labrizzi's book. Again, that's Haunted Islands in the Gulf of Maine. And you heard Katrina mentioning her book. And I do have a link that you can click on. It'll take you right over to it over on Amazon. And the name of that book is By the River. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did hear from Rick, who suggested the location for our last episode, which was the Princess Theater in Melbourne. And he says, hi, Diane. It was such a surprise to discover just a few minutes ago, HGB covering the Princess Theater. Totally forgotten I'd suggested it. Well researched as always. I've only been to the Princess Theater once back in 1999 when I saw a production of The Importance of Being Earnest. Remember having one or two qualms whether I was sitting in the ghost seat. Fortunately not. So any unpleasantness between Vetterici and I was avoided. Very good. And then I heard from a listener named Heather who wanted to share with me something extra to go with episode 182. She says, I recently started listening to the podcast and have begun mainlining back episodes. I did want to point out a teeny tiny correction to episode 182. You said you'd never heard of Denton, but actually you have. NAMUS, the National Database for Missing People, is operated by the University of North Texas. And she includes a link to their website. And that website is untfsu.com forward slash NAMUS forward slash overview dot HTMLS. Most people don't realize this database was started by volunteers. Much of the work of NAMUS and the Doe Network is still run by volunteers and students. And NAMUS is currently struggling because the research arm of the Department of Justice has cut back its funding. Also, Billy's Law, the federal bill that would make it mandatory for all local and state agencies to submit the DNA of unidentified bodies in a name U.S., has still not been signed into law. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why that has not been done. And then she just uh, let me know she loves podcasts and suggested a cemetery for me to check out. So thank you so much for sharing that with us, Heather. All right, so I thought this would be fun to share from the Spooktacular crew. Hi, y'all. My name is Sarah. I'm a relatively new member to the Spooky family, and I was hoping we could get to know each other a little bit. Comment below something about the area you live lived in that the locals think is normal, 
but people visiting would think is weird. And I thought, wow, what a fabulous question. I thought you guys would be interested to hear a lot of the different members' answers to this. So Sarah started it all by saying, I'll start. I grew up in Southern Maryland, USA, and it was totally normal to put Old Bay seasoning on everything. Literally everything. Mac and cheese, seafood, chicken, even chocolate. Ugh. And if you suggest that Old Bay wouldn't taste good on something, you would basically become shunned. LOL. Not really, but people could tell that you were not a longtime local. Kaylee Seymour said, I'm from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. We have three penitentiaries in the area. Two of them have a maximum security and minimum security facility within the grounds. No one here bats an eye at it. Outsiders find it unnerving that there's so many prisons. And I was just thinking to myself, that's a lot of prisons in one area. The one institution, Collins Bay, is commonly mistaken as the Disney castle by kids. I don't know a single person who growing up here didn't think that's what it was at some point in their life. And apparently Kingston General is supposedly very haunted. So we'll have to add that to the list. Don says the Stanley Hotel. I've never seen or heard a ghost, but I know plenty who have. My son had prom there and nothing. Oh, and we put green chili on everything. Kristen says, I'm from the south side of Chicago, where every square mile contains a church, a funeral home, and a dive bar, sometimes within the same block. And you know it's a dive bar if there's no real name and just has a sign hanging outside the door with the old-style logo. Those are some of the best. Amanda says, I'm from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. My friends and I like to go to bars in town and play ghost or reenactor, a.k.a. we try to guess what people are as they walk by. (laughs) You guys are horrible. Kareen says, I'm originally from a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, but my husband and I have lived near Atlanta, Georgia, Columbus, Ohio, and are currently near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I can say for certain that each region of the U.S. has its own quirks. Cleveland, pierogies are everywhere. I didn't realize that few other areas had never heard of them before. P.S. They're delicious. Yes, they are. I love pierogies. Atlanta, one of the first things people ask is, what church do you go to? Followed by, do you want to come to mine? Southern hospitality is a real thing. People say y'all and bless your heart. Columbus, Midwest, big on small talk and pleasantries, big on keeping things nice and you skim the surface. This holds true for Cleveland as well. In Philadelphia, Philly soft pretzels are everywhere. Every barbecue school event potluck get together has a pretzel tray. To a lesser degree, water ice is the same. Only you go get water ice. It isn't usually brought places. Water ice is kind of like a thick slushy. On your summer vacation, you go down shore. This means going to a New Jersey beach. And I learned that from Dina. Every family has their favorite beach town and insists it's the best. A lot of families have a shore house. Also, it's never called the beach. It's always shore. And nearly everyone, even if they don't have any other Philly accent, says wood uh, for water. (laughs) Wood uh. Mary says, hey, gal, I live in Newark, Ohio, and we have amazing Indian mounds. Angela says, I'm from northern Kentucky, southern south Cincinnati. We put chili on spaghetti. Nick says, I live in Collinsville, Illinois. We are home to the world's largest ketchup bottle. (laughs) Drea, hey, they're currently calling Highland Park near New Brunswick and Rutgers University, New Jersey home. It's a beautiful little old town. I love that I can do the grocery shopping, bank mail, etc. without needing a car. Not really weird, but contrary to the stereotype of New Jersey, we have nature and parks are everywhere. New Jersey is a melting pot of all cultures, not just Italian guidos. The food in my area is fantastic. Our main street has Peruvian barbecue, Indian, Thai, Greek, Mexican, the local diner, a coffee roasters, Mongolian hot pot, etc. But no chain restaurants. There are museums, music venues, theaters, and the train to New York City all within walking distance. We even have a small historical village nearby. There are mountains for skiing in the north, the shore, which is the beach in the south, and rolling green forests all over. Fat sandwiches really are a thing. You can get them at local food trucks near the university. Also, everyone has their best bagel place, sandwich place, and pizza place. Do not argue with them. Just agree to disagree. 
I answered that we have Spook Hill here in Central Florida, and this is one of those hills where you can put your car in neutral and it will roll backward up the hill. Weird oddity. Brianne says, Southwest Missouri and the albino farm. So Sarah said, I'm sorry, a what? Brianne said, local folklore states that down on the outskirts of town, there used to be a commune of albinos that hid away from people and that would try to chase off anyone that, that tried to find them. Legends say that if you go down there at midnight, your car stalls and people come out of the woods to get you. Went down there with friends in high school and while our car never stalled, we swore the temperature dropped 20 plus degrees and that we saw people in the trees that practically glowed. And I believe we talked about that. I cannot remember what road that was, though. Kaylee says, I'm from a small town in western Washington at the base of Mount Rainier, a dormant volcano. Once a month, they test the Lehar evacuation sirens because we're all going to die when she wakes up. It's normal for us, but we just don't dwell on it. Cheryl says, I live in an old Victorian that was previously the town's funeral home. The dining room, living room, and front room were all viewing rooms. Each has a separate entrance from the outside and can be closed off with pocket doors for privacy. The garage was the carriage house where coffins were kept. Nice. That kind of goes in line with the fact that Katrina lived in a former funeral home. Karen, I grew up in Salamanca, New York. It's the only American city on an Indian reservation. They teach the Seneca language in the schools. I'm sure I said that city wrong. Suzanne, I live in Panama City, Florida, and we have a four-headed palm tree. Sadly, one of them is starting to die, but it is still an amazing sight. Just check that out sometime. And Kelly, who is in Southern California, has a gravity hill as well, where your car rolls uphill. Melissa says, I live in Upland, California. It's a small town in Southern California. Nothing too weird happens here, unfortunately, but our downtown area has several haunted old buildings, and there are a few ghost tours you can take in October. Check that out. Abby, from Southwest UK, not really a strange thing, more of a strange event. Once a year, people chase a massive roll of cheese down a seriously steep hill. (laughs) Oh my god. Alrighty then. Shelly, I live in Southern Oregon. We are obsessed with our coffee in the PNW. There are coffee stands everywhere. Also, there's an Air National Guard base in my town. There are always F-15s flying about. We're used to it, but visitors are often in awe or wonder how we tolerate the noise. You just don't even notice it much, really, though the Memorial Day flyovers really evoke the emotions. Deborah, I'm from Burbank, California, near Los Angeles, and I think most people think everything about L.A. is weird. I guess the one thing we think of as normal, especially in Burbank, is seeing Jay Leno driving around in his many different cars. I used to see Bob Hope driving around, too, many years ago before he died. Oh, that'd be cool. Tiffany, I have one. I live in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and in our downtown area, we have a giant clock pole tower that spews smoke every hour on the hour to symbolize our past. Interesting. Karen, we have a Y bridge near us that most people would think is weird. It never gets old to tell someone to go to the middle of the bridge and turn right. LOL. <laughs> Katrina, who was on this episode, I live in Maine and we have a wife carrying competition every year. We also have an entire festival devoted to a gross beverage that tastes like cough syrup. <laughs> and the whole festival for that? Wonderful. And finally, Autumn. I could not think of anything earlier today for where I am from in Georgetown, Kentucky. We were mentioned in Weird Kentucky for the Lock and Key Coffee House because of the bullet that is in the bathroom wall. It is framed as a historic curiosity per the book. I went there for coffee with my kids when it was still open and saw the bullet. Didn't get to see the building's ghost named Georgie, though. Today, it is a photo studio. Well, thank you to all of you guys for sharing that, and I hope the listeners enjoyed hearing about that as well. I'm going to be heading up to Charleston, South Carolina this weekend. We're going to have a meetup up there at the Old City Jail. And we've already covered it on a previous episode. But you know that I'm going to be doing an episode talking about my experiences there since I will have been inside of it. So looking forward to sharing that with you guys here in the future. 
I want to thank Katrina for joining me on this episode and thank all of you for joining me on this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This podcast episode has been brought to you by our executive producers, and I would love so many more of you to get on board and become executive producers as well. You're the reason that I'm able to produce this show, and you guys are going to be the ones who help me to keep this going. So if you've ever thought about becoming an executive producer, now would be a great time to do that. You can do it for as little as a buck a month. And for the price of a fancy cup of coffee, $5 a month, you get a bonus episode every single week. So you get the four regular episodes plus four bonus ones, and they're very good. I promise you won't be disappointed. And you get the entire back catalog when you sign up. So if you need more stuff to binge, there's over a 100 episodes for you to binge there as well. And they're not as long, so they won't take as long for you to get to if it seems a little overwhelming. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the graveyard Amanda West, and she will be getting a chest tomb. Sweet dreams. 